Well, I think you're going to enjoy today's UFO encounters. It is certainly a story that I've not heard before, and I think you'll find it fascinating. First of all, I wanted to tell you, though, that Monday evening on the 27th of May, I will be having a video meet and greet. Now, in my infinite wisdom, I did not realize Monday is Memorial Day, Uh, (laughs) so I don't know if you'll be able to attend But I'll be there. It's 10 p.m. Eastern on Memorial Day, May 27th. And since you're a member, you can just go over to jimherald.net and sign up. You'll find the post right there. It might be a few down, but it'll be there. That's all I had to say, except that I think you're really going to enjoy this edition of UFO Encounters. UFOs. Are they aliens? government secret projects, the imaginings of disturbed individuals, or just outright hoaxes? We're here to find out. Welcome to Jim Harold's UFO Encounters. Welcome to UFO Encounters. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And I must say, what we're going to buy, talk about today is one of the more incredible stories that I've heard from the UFO literature. It's called Secret Journey to Planet Serpo, a true story of interplanetary travel. Our guest is Lynn Caston. He's been a guest previously on the Paranormal Podcast, and we're so glad to have him with us. And I'm going to let him describe to you what this is, because it is fantastic, and he says it's absolutely true. Len Caston is a UFO researcher and freelance writer. He is a former member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and the Mutual UFO Network. A feature writer with more than 50 published articles in Atlantis Rising and New Dawn magazines, and the author of The Secret History of Extraterrestrials. He lives in Arizona. Len Caston, welcome to the program. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Good to have you here, and good to have you tell us about this, because this is an incredible book. Um, how did you get introduced to this idea of Secret Journey to Planet Serpo? Well, I, I used to go to the uh, annual UFO Congress in, um, in um, Laughlin, Nevada. And, of course, at that Congress, everyone, people from all over the world attended that. And uh, Bill Ryan was one of the attendees that particular year, which was 2006. Uh, Bill is the one that first publicized all of this, put out the website. Uh, I, we had to take, to get from Laughlin to the airport in, in uh, Las Vegas, we had to take a two-hour land shuttle, and I was in the shuttle with Bill, and he spoke about this for those entire two hours all the way, and I listened to the whole story for two hours and uh, decided that I had to look into it further and do the research, and I did, and that's how it all began. So for those not familiar... What is the basic premise of this book? Because it's earth-shattering. Yes, it is, truly. Uh, it's the true story of the fact that we sent 12 Americans on an alien spaceship to a planet that was 39 light years from our solar system, and they stayed there for 13 years. And then uh, seven of them returned. And that is a true story. Now, as, that was, as that I... 19, that was in 1965. Now, um, let's talk about uh, what is planet Serpo, where is it, roughly, and who inhabits it? Well, planet Serpo is, uh, is the fourth planet in the uh, star system of Zeta Reticuli, and this particular uh, 
planet revolves around Zeta Reticuli 2, which is the second of the binary star system in that particular constellation. Uh, it's very much like Earth in a lot of ways. It's about the same size. The atmosphere is very similar. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, nitrogen, and uh, very livable for, uh, for any of any earthlings are able to live there. The only problem is the um, intense heat, particularly in the equatorial region, and also the, uh, the intense radiation, which caused a big problem for our people. Now, um, when you talk about contact, you talk about contact b- between the beings of this planet and the American government, but I'm looking at your book, and that contact goes further back than the United States, doesn't it? The contact between the aliens and uh, and our planet? Yes. Well, they have been they have been uh, visiting our planet for a long time, but they this was the first instance of contact with with the uh, American American government was was at the Roswell crash. The Roswell crash is what began the entire this entire story because uh, one alien survived the crash. Mm-hmm. Now, but, but my question is: in the book, you reference Germany. What was the role of Germany in all of this uh, World War II Germany? Well. I, I, I devoted an entire section uh, of the book to the under the heading of prelude because I wanted to tell the whole story and the whole story of how we how we first got uh, connected or our hands on alien on uh, anti gravity aircraft and uh, how the Germans developed them how the, how we learned about them in World War II how the Germans uh, brought them over to their Antarctic colony and continued to work on them and how we attacked that colony, and uh, in a naval armada headed up by, by Admiral Byrd with 4,700 Marines in 1947, and how they sent flying saucers to attack that armada, and uh, 68 men died in that engagement. So that alerted our government to the fact that the German Reich was still very much alive, and they were living in in Antarctica, and they had flying saucers, and uh, that put us in a very vulnerable position because we were then concerned that they could attack us at any time. And I wanted to make that point clear, so that when the alien craft crashed in um, in um, New Mexico in 1947, we had a, a vested interest. In maintaining, in, in establishing a relationship with those aliens, because they had technology that we now needed very much, and so I wanted to tell that entire story, uh, starting with the, uh, with the with the German uh, development of uh, of uh, saucer technology during the war, and then bringing it forward to the Roswell crash, then to the Kingman crash, which was actually a landing, wasn't a crash, and then to Kennedy's role in the entire matter. That all constituted what I call the prelude to um, to the uh, trip to Serpo. Now, um, and I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I'm curious. Now, the Germans were um, developing anti-gravity aircraft, uh, and you show some great renderings here in the book of, of saucers and so forth. Was that something that was shared with them willingly by the aliens, or is it something where they reverse-engineered something that crashed? According to the research that I did, 
the, the uh, Germans had established a relationship with a group of aliens that are now called the Reptilians. And they had made a pact with that group. You know, Hitler made a pact with that group in 1933. And that, that was the source of all of the technology. Uh, it's my belief. That was the source of all of the uh, anti-gravity technology that flowed into the German, through the German scientists. And you make the point, I think, in the book that if the war had lasted a bit longer, um, these weapons could have been brought to bear and it would have been a world of hurt for the Allies. Yeah, because all of that technology was moved to Antarctica. Uh, As the war wound down, the Nazis realized uh, they had already established that base in 1938 uh, in Antarctica. And uh, it was was, uh, under the ice, basically... um, in the uh, off the Weddell, what's called the Weddell Sea in Antarctica, uh, they had warm water warm water ports down there under the ice, and uh, they were the, the the base there had already been in effect for uh, uh, seven years as World War II wound down. So they moved all their technology to that base. And when we sent that armada down there in 1947, under Operation High Jump, uh, they sent those flying saucers to repel that invasion, and and 68 American Marines were killed in that engagement. And that's what alerted our government to the fact that uh, World War II essentially was not over yet. And and that's certainly covered in greater depth in the book, and we'll kind of leave that sit there. But right there, all of that is just fascinating, let alone to even more fantastic things that are contained within the book. Now, you say that there was an alien who survived the Roswell crash. Did that alien survive for any length of time? And I'm assuming there was the ability to have ongoing substantial communications with that alien? Yeah, the alien was taken to Los Alamos Laboratories. And uh, we established communication with him, although his language was very, very difficult for us to understand. Uh, just as in the movie Close Encounters, the aliens spoke in, in tonal variations, and uh, we had a very difficult time communicating with him. But we, they brought in some language experts from all over the world, and eventually uh, communications was established, and uh, we learned a great deal about... Uh, what, where he came from. Now, on that craft, there was an, a communications device that he used to communicate with his home planet. We, we salvaged that device, and we couldn't get it to work for the entire time that he remained alive. He, he actually remained alive for five additional years. He died in 1952. But towards the end of, of, that, of his life, one of the uh, Los Alamos scientists finally realized that to get that communications device to work, it had to be reconnected to the power source on the crashed disk. And when they did that, they got it to work. And as soon as that happened, the alien sent six messages to his planet. Uh, one of those messages at, at our prompting was to uh, suggest that there be an exchange program between his, pro- his uh, planet and our planet. Uh, Apparently, that suggestion was made at the prompting of one of his military handlers at Los Alamos. But then he died died shortly thereafter. He died in 1952. So then, 
Um, I'm assuming that there was some follow-up communication. Did that happen immediately, or would, did that take several? Uh, was that several years hence? Well, you know, we were able to send messages to his planet using that device after he died, and a dialogue. We started a dialogue with that planet, but the language difficulties were almost insurmountable uh, until we finally figured out a good way to do it was to send them some Eng- some English lessons. Okay. And so we, uh, the scientists at Los Alamos sent them uh, English in- instructions, and they, based on the proposition that they were probably smarter than we were, sure. and they could learn English much faster than we could learn their language, which was in- almost impossible. And based on that, we started communicating with them in rough English over a 10-year period. And was Kennedy the first substantial uh, leader who uh, had communication with them? Well, actually, that the communication began during the Eisenhower era. Right. Okay. Uh, by the time we were really communicating effectively, Kennedy had become president. That's how long it took to really get it going. And uh, Kennedy was briefed on the uh, on the entire operation, and he was told that there was a suggestion for an exchange program, and that, that suggestion had originated uh, earlier under the Eisenhower people. So he said to go ahead with it. He said, let's go ahead with the exchange program. And he gave the, he gave the directive that, that started the whole thing in motion, 1962. Now, one thing that's always interested me, and I wonder if there's a tie here, is if you look at the history of mankind, particularly the, the, the 19th and 20th centuries, the kind of acceleration of of um, technology in our daily lives. I'm 43 years old, and I'm old enough to remember having a dial phone, uh, no microwave, no VCR. We did have, when I was a little kid, they had developed color TV, uh, no internet, uh, no mobile phones, um, no personal computers, uh, and I could probably sit here and think of 20 other things. And in the course of my relatively short lifetime, although I feel a little old some now and then. Um, it's a revolution. Everything's totally changed from the time I was uh, an elementary school kid. Totally changed. Not to mention right. the other 50 years previous. Um, right. Is that partially uh, or wholly a result of this interaction between us and aliens? Well, okay. First of all, while mankind was going through primitive stages where the ox cart and bows and arrows, they didn't really have much to do with us. And uh, we would never have been able to comprehend anything that they told us or gave us. It was so far removed, it would have appeared, like, it would have appeared to be magic, essentially. But it, towards in the 30s, as our technology improved, communication and understanding between the two civilizations became possible. And uh, they had been coming and visiting our planet for thousands of years. And probably they they thought we were savages, which we were, and they couldn't really talk to us. With <laughs> they were landing with with uh, with sophisticated uh, uh, craft, having traveled through time, and knew how to do time travel and all that. And here we were uh, with bows and arrows. So it took a while before they began to interact. And even in 1947, when that alien craft crashed in the in the uh, New Mexico desert, they had no intention of communicating with us. If that accident hadn't occurred, uh, they would have just gone away and gone home. 
But because that alien survived, they were compelled to deal with us, and they did. And that's, that's how it all started. And so would you say that the technology that we enjoy today, the ability for me to uh, talk to people all over the world via things like Skype and everything that we see around us, is any of that uh, as a result of some kind of technology development uh, program in coordination with the aliens, or is it just a natural progression? Have you read Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell? Have you heard about that book? Yes. Yes, I have. Well, you know that a a lot of the artifacts that were found at the crash site were given to American industry to develop and to work with. One of those was the semiconductor, and that Pretty started important. the whole. <laughs> yeah, that started the whole solid-state computer revolution. And then there was a night vision technology. There was Kevlar. I mean, so many of the things that were found in that crashed craft were seeded with American industry by Colonel Corso in nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. He was given that job in nineteen sixty-four, I believe. He wrote his book in 1997, which was 30 years later. Uh, Now, in that interval, a lot had happened that he didn't even know about. Uh, But giving those those pieces of equipment to American industry started a lot of the things that we we now call high technology, yes. Now, go ahead. No, 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 finish your thought, please. But we have been, there's, there's a piece here that's missing that had to be covered. And did you read my entire book? I've not gotten through your entire book, no. Okay, I have a chapter called Kingman, K-I-N-G-M-A-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became apparent that that craft that crashed in the, the desert was a, small, was a small scout craft. It wasn't capable of really an interstellar uh, journey. And I think that the Los Alamos scientists realized that and made an attempt to contact the mother ship, because we, we assumed that there had to be a larger ship in orbit for that craft to have come down and crashed. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, that communication that we established with them revealed the fact that they did have a craft in orbit. Mm-hmm. And we, I guess we said to them, well, why don't you send down another ship for us to, uh, to communicate with and to, 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 to perhaps reverse engineer. And that's what happened in 1953. They sent another, sh- another craft down, which landed in the Kingman, Arizona area. Uh, that, that, was, that was not a crash. That was basically a landing. They just ended up landing in the wrong place because they were headed for the Nevada test site, and they didn't make, quite make it. Eventually, that craft was taken to the Nevada test site, and there were four live aliens on that craft, they helped us to develop and to reverse engineer their, their uh, anti-gravity craft. So by the time of the, of the journey to Circle, we had already been working with them for nine years here, right here on Earth. Amazing. So we, knew all, so we knew all about them. We knew all about them. Now, so the decision was made to have uh, a number of U.S. astronauts um, go take a journey. How in the world was the planning done for this in such a way to keep it secret? This was probably the most secret project ever. It was it was above uh, it was above top secret code word. Uh, you know there were supposed to be thirty three levels above top secret. Uh, you know these these particular projects are 
are very highly compartmentalized and only only a few people know about them. And uh, when this when this program was started, we we put out a we put out a, a ad for uh, volunteers for what was said to be a a moon journey, a trip to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had 500 volunteers. This was strictly military people. They had 500 volunteers, and out of those 500, they selected six, ultimately selected 16. This was after Kennedy had given the go-ahead for the exchange program. Uh, and so they trained 16, although only 12 were going to go. They had four alternates. And they had 18 months to do it because the landing was scheduled, already scheduled for April of 1964, and that couldn't be changed. So they had 18 months to select the team and to train them. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a very fast, fast, quickly done operation. Well, that would that would have to be some commitment. Now, you had mentioned that the this lasted for some years. I mean, over 10 years, the, the, the trip. So, I mean, were they told up front, hey, what you're... you're um, uh, you're volunteering for this is going to take a dozen years of your life and you're not going to be home. I mean, you would think about if people have families, even if they weren't married and didn't have kids, they still had ostensibly parents and other uh, siblings and so forth. I mean, this would take an extreme commitment for somebody to volunteer for something where you're taking over a decade of your life. Well, they weren't told the nature of the trip until late into their training. So it was really deceptive. And at that point, they must have been rather, uh, they must have been rather uh, scared of, of going on this journey. And it, uh, but eventually, twelve of them did say they were going to stick with it, and they did. So, um, actually, you know, the the uh, the ad that that asked for the volunteers did not actually was not able to get twelve people that they wanted. So they had to go and recruit. Some other specialties, for instance, the um, scientists, they couldn't get the right kind of scientists, so they had to go out and recruit them. But eventually, they did get 16 people who said they would go ahead and go on the trip. They were told that would be it would be for a period of 10 years, so they knew that. They mm-hmm. knew that. Now, um, in terms of the 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 trip, what kind of craft did they take? Was it a craft that? Uh, w- the U.S. had reverse-engineered and built? Was it a craft supplied by the aliens? What what kind of craft did they go on, and how long did it take them to get there? The, uh, the, planning, the planning involved sending 45 tons of equipment and supplies with the 12, uh, with the 12 people. Uh, so it would require, naturally, to, to take 45 tons, uh, a rather large ship. And the craft they sent at that point was what they called a shuttle craft, much, much larger than the scout craft, because they were able to load the entire 45 tons of equipment on that, onto that craft. At one point, the team commander said in his diary that he stood in a room with a 100-foot ceiling. So, and they were able to, to move the entire uh, load of 45 tons of equipment and supplies in one move onto the shuttle craft. That craft, in turn, flew up to a mothership which was in orbit, which was even much larger than that. And that was the ship that they took to Serpo. And the journey took uh, 10 months. It took 10 months to get from, from here to their planet. 
And I'm assuming since there had been previously communication between the aliens and us that the the U.S. and the the authorities were able to stay in contact with the astronauts throughout their uh, stay there at Planet Serpo? Yeah, that's 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 pretty much understood by what was revealed, although he doesn't go into that in great detail, but uh, the communications device was still working, so uh, we did have that communication working, yeah. And was it and is it a friendly relationship? For example, I think about the Cold War, and there would be various kind of detente-oriented exchange programs where athletes or something might go over to Russia or ballet, uh, ballet stars might come over here and dance in various productions, um, the kind of these cultural exchanges, but there was still a very tense relationship between the two powers being the U.S. and at that time the Soviet Union. Uh, was that kind of the situation here, or was there uh, an understanding between the U.S. government and the aliens that they were essentially allies? Yeah, they they were very caring and... Uh and friendly people, and uh, they were very, very hospitable to our team. Uh, they allowed them to, uh, to, to to wander all over the planet, wherever they wanted to go. They were given, they had, they had anti-gravity transportation, uh, something like our helicopters, but without the uh, without the blades. They were anti-gravity. They were given that to, to wander anywhere they wanted to go on the planet, and they were very helpful and uh, and friendly. So uh, we we developed a very good diplomatic relationship with that civilization, which which still lasts until today. Did the astronauts and you've got various individuals, so everybody has different. But on the whole, did they enjoy their time there, and did any of them decide to stay? Yeah, of the twelve that went, of course, um, they didn't all get there. One of them died on the way. Uh, Eleven of them survived the trip. And of the 11, uh, two additional team members died uh, in the first uh, three to five years. I'm not sure exactly when. A doctor and a security man died. So that left, uh, that left nine. Of the nine, two decided to stay and remain on Planet Serpo. So seven, seven returned in, in, two, in 1978. Seven of them returned. And what was their um, what was their message back to the authorities about these people about the experience, what they felt they had learned? Well, when they came back in 1978, which was 13 years after they left, they were only supposed to stay for 10 years, but they lost track of time because uh, their timepieces stopped working. They couldn't keep track of Earth time because the uh, Serpo had two suns in the sky, and they didn't have a day and night set up like we have. Uh, it was always daylight there. It got dim, but it, it always stayed, uh, stayed, stayed light, and the team members couldn't keep up with uh, recording Earth time. So they really ended up spending 13 years there instead of 10. Uh, so uh, when they came back, they were debriefed for a, a solid year, of course, in top-secret facility. And out of that debriefing came a 3,000-page book. Of course, they brought back with them about 3,000 photographs, 
thousands of uh, cassette-recorded uh, diaries, all by the, each team member kept his own set of cassette-recorded diaries, um, soil samples, vegetation samples, everything you can think of, they brought back with them. Uh, and all of that is still today kept in a vault at uh, Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, which is the DIA headquarters. Defense, Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, yeah. Why is the government holding this back? Why aren't they telling us about it? Well, they did tell us. That's what happened. That's the reason. This, that's how this book came to be written. There were documents. There, there are documents. But here's my question: If um, a journalist goes to a press conference with President Obama, for example, and says, um, "Can you talk to us about uh, Planet Serpo and the um, journey there uh, to the alien uh, alien world and and the return thirteen years later?" I don't think his reaction is going to be, "Oh yes, let me tell you all about that." No, that's not the way it gets. That's not the way it's going to be disclosed. No, what happened was when President Kennedy took over this program, he put the entire matter in the hands of the DIA. Now, the DIA is not the same as the CIA. Right. The DIA was started by President Kennedy and McNamara, his Secretary of Defense, in 1961. So they did not know anything that had occurred prior to 1961. They did not know anything about uh, the reverse engineering program that had occurred for the last 10 years preceding that. Uh, but the DIA was, was uh, given that same sense of transparency that Kennedy uh, believed in. Kennedy did not believe in government secrecy. And when he started the DIA, it more or less had the same um, same the same kind of um, feeling with it, that they were not going to keep everything locked up, that the American people deserved to know a lot of what was going on. So when the final report on the Serpo project was written in 1980, it had to stay secret for 25 years. Under, under government regulations, top secret material have to, has to, had to stay secret for that period of time. As soon as that 25-year period had elapsed, these DIA people came forward and released this information to the Internet. And that's how it all started. That's how it came about. That's how the, the revelation came about. Now, in terms of um, the aliens, this race of aliens relations, is it exclusive with the U.S. government, or do you have any sense if they have uh, diplomatic relations with any other world governments? Well, we have introduced them to other world governments. They have been back now uh, 10 times. They've come back 10 times since the, uh, the Serpo program. In the last one, which was, uh, no, I'm sorry, not the last one, but the one in 2009, they landed at a remote island in the mid-Pacific called Johnston Island. Uh, Johnston Island is, is about the size of a large aircraft carrier, and it's strictly a military base. It's just one big, one big airfield is what it is with some barracks. That's where they landed. And at that particular uh, visit, we invited the uh, representatives from the People's Republic of China, from Russia, and from other nations to attend that meeting. And the Vatican, representatives of the Vatican were also there. So we have been, we have been spreading this, this 
wider to make, and also, by the way, the UN representatives were at that meeting. So basically, they all know about it now because we don't we don't want to keep it exclusive to uh, to the U.S. We want it known by other nations. This is a planet. This is a planet-wide connection. This is not a, an American Serpo connection, and we have viewed it that way right from the beginning. You had mentioned the reptilians before. Any sense of through this, uh, how many different species of aliens? Now, uh, these aliens from planet Serpo sounds like they're 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 friendly. Uh, but I'm assuming just like different countries, uh, and different philosophies, you know, there are people in the world that are relatively peaceful and, uh, have a progressive type, uh, feel about things and don't necessarily want to resort to war. And then you have other peoples and countries and so forth that are very warlike. I, I would guess that in the huge universe that we're a part of that, uh, that there may be some other species out there that are not as benevolent. Absolutely. The, uh, the Ebens, by the way, that we, we know them now as the Ebens. Uh, that's the name we've given to them. That name started with one of our people saying, calling them extraterrestrial biological entity, EBE. And then that's, that became Ebens. And so that's the way we know them today. Uh, the Ebens have told us that there are many hostile races out there that they, uh, they have nothing to do with, and that we, they know are dangerous. They themselves had been involved in a war that lasted a hundred years, uh, of their years, I assume, and uh, virtually almost decimated their whole civilization. But ultimately, they did win that war, and uh, so they've been—they've warned us about many hostile races in our galaxy. Um. The reptilians, that's a whole nother story. We, I don't think you want to get into that right now. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that's, a, that's a different book, I'm, I'm sure. Um, yeah. let, me, let me ask you this. I, I mean, the general public, when you talk about uh, UFOs, they're familiar with Roswell. There may be a, a secondary layer of people uh, familiar with uh, the Rendlesham Forest incident and Kingman, as you mentioned. Uh, I get the sense that not as many people are familiar with this Planet Serpo story. Do you think that's about ready to change? I think it is. Uh, That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. The main reason I wrote the book was that the website, which is still out there, by the way, www.serpo.org, all of this material is still out there on that website. You know, it worried me that that website could go away overnight, and we would have no record of this amazing amazing, um, project. And the book had to be written before that happened. Uh, what happened when, when all this material was revealed by Bill Ryan uh, and Victor Martinez on their website, uh, almost everybody was incredulous. And, and most of the people, including some, very, some veteran UFO investigators, just sloughed it off. They said, there's no way this could have happened. And so the interest uh, sort of died. But I, I, I realized that this was a true story because it connected with a lot of information that I already had. And I knew that, that Ryan was a very uh, uh, re- responsible journalist, and he wouldn't have gotten involved in this if he had thought it was all uh, disinformation. So, uh, But I think a lot of people were turned off, a lot of investigators were turned off because they said, 
this is just impossible. It couldn't have happened. However, I think now people may be ready for understanding and accepting this information. Well, if people want to get more information about this, um, tie into the book and all of your work, where would you suggest they go? First of all, they can still go to the website. The website is still there. It's www.serpo.org. O-R-G. There's 13,000 words there. It's huge. They could spend they could spend months just going just going through that website. Uh, they could then also go to my website to get the book. Uh, and my website can pass can pass them through to Barnes and Noble, or to the publisher, or to Amazon, or they can buy it directly from me. And it's et-secrethistory.com. So those are the those are the main sources of information right now. Well, again, uh, a lot of times when you do these programs, you'll hear the same kind of things talked about over and over and over again, a rehash of maybe some old material, slightly different way of looking at it. This is something truly unique in the eight years we've been doing the programs. I thank you very much, Lynn Caston, for joining us today and telling us the story of Secret Journey to Planet Serpo. My pleasure, Jim. Nice talk with you. And thank you for tuning in to this edition of UFO Encounters. We certainly appreciate it. Please tell your friends about the shows, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.